I decided when I was in eighth grade, after the eighth grade, to stop playing football. And the reason I gave for that at that point in time was I wanted to concentrate on my favorite sport, which happened to be basketball. Also stopped playing baseball at that time. And back then, you know, everybody played everything. That's just kind of how it was. It wasn't like it is nowadays where people tend to specialize more in one particular sport. But the reason that I gave was I want to concentrate on something else. I think the real reason that I gave up football after eighth grade was that I weighed about 135 pounds soaking wet. My legs were so skinny I had to wear skis in the shower to keep from going down the drain. I mean, there just wasn't much to me as an eighth grader to play football. And the truth is, I got tired of getting beat up. You see, the, the positions that I played in eighth grade football, I played defensive end on defense and tight end on offense. And so there was a guy by the name of Kurt Ballou who was about 30 to 40 pounds heavier than I was. He was the fullback on offense, and he was the linebacker, the middle linebacker on defense. And so that meant that when I was on offense, I had to block him. When he was on offense, he blocked me. And I just got tired of having the snot beat out of me and decided that I'm going to go try something else. You know, sometimes when we feel like we're getting beat up, we just want to give it up. Don't we and say, enough of that already. I think I'll move on to something else. And last week in Hebrews chapter 5, at the end of that chapter, it could feel like we're starting to get beat up a little bit. He's starting to challenge them a little bit. He's starting to, to, to get in their face a little bit and say, it's time to grow up. It's time to mature in your faith, to move on in your faith. And that is not intended to be a, hey, let me beat you up so you can quit. That is intended to be like that coach that comes alongside and says, I'm going to ride you a little bit because I know that you can do better. Because I believe in you, because I know that you are capable of more, I'm going to get on your case a little bit and bring the best out of you. And that's the, the goal and the intention. And so as we get into some of these things and continue into it today in Hebrews chapter 6, don't take this as I'm getting beat up, I want to give up, but take it as that coach coming alongside saying, I believe in you, I know you've got more in you, let's, let's bring it out. Let's read together Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, let us move beyond elementary teachings about Christ and be taking forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about cleansing rites and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Now let's stop there for just a minute. The, the instructions that he's giving here is let's move on. Let's grow up as we talked about a little bit last week. It's time to, to move on in your faith and, and to build on this foundation. Here's what I think was going on um, in this context here is he's speaking, remember, this book is called the book of Hebrews because it was written to Hebrew or Jewish background believers. And so they're coming out of a system that was focused on a lot of external types of things. In fact, all the things that he lists in starting in verse, I guess the end of verse 1 and leading into verse 2, all of those things are part of the Jewish faith. In fact, I would ask the question, which of those items listed there are distinctively Christian? And the answer is none. All of them are things that... that Jewish people follow, that Christians could say, hey, we have this in common. And I wonder if the temptation here, if part of the, the, the prompting to grow up was to say, look, you've got to leave behind this old way. You've got to leave behind this desire to, hey, say we're, we're all together. And you've got to be more passionate about following Jesus. See, that's, that's what we're all about 
as Christians. I think the temptation was to go through the religious rituals, but not focus so much on Jesus. And so the, the first thing that I, that I really want us to grasp this morning is this reality that part of growing up in their faith, and therefore part of growing up in our faith, is leaving behind the temptation to still be religious, but not so fanatical about Jesus. I wonder if that resonates with anybody this morning. The thought that I can still be religious, but not so fanatical about Jesus. When it comes to things like going to church, most people are like, hey, that's great. You go to church, good for you. You feed the poor, wonderful. Keep doing it. You're a Sunday school teacher, extra brownie points for you. I'm sure there's extra reward in heaven for, as a result of that. But, but you start getting, bringing too much Jesus into it, and you start getting too fanatical about Jesus, and especially if you start talking about how I'm not going to go to heaven without Jesus, or you start talking about how my lifestyle or the things that I'm comfortable with aren't okay, that's when you start to get a lot of pushback. And it's like, no, 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 no. You, you go ahead and do your religious thing, but let's not get so fanatical about Jesus. Well, the reality is, is that the entire book of Hebrews is all about being fanatical about Jesus. It's all about how Jesus is better and we are to follow him and that's more important than anything else. In fact, I would argue that the entire New Testament is all about being fanatical about Jesus. And so part of that growing in our faith, part of that leaving the elementary things behind is coming to a point of understanding that I can't just ride the fence or I can't just kind of be you know, going through the religious motions. I've got to really pursue Christ with all of my heart. And that's the challenge that we have. Continuing on in verse 4. So, so now he says, let's move on to some things and not lay again the same foundation. Verse 4 says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. These verses are some of the most difficult, most challenging verses in all the New Testament for us to understand and to interpret correctly. Uh, some read these verses and what they see in this passage is a description of those who once had a real relationship with Christ, who once had a genuine faith, but who fell away from that faith. This is where you get the, the concept of falling from grace. The belief that at one point maybe you were saved, but that you could lose that if you drift away from it. And once you do, according to what we read, if that's the way we interpret it, it says there's really no hope for being brought back in that case. And so as a result, these verses have created a substantial amount of fear in the hearts of a lot of believers. Because they read this and think, oh my goodness, what if that happens to me? What, what if I am one of those who fall away. That's one way to read and understand the passage. And, and I have to concede that that is a legitimate way, just reading this passage by itself, especially if you don't read the context around it, that, that is a very understandable conclusion to come to. But 
this morning, I, I want to go a little bit, dig into a little bit of theology with you this morning. And I think that's important for us to do, particularly in passages like this. Let me give you two main reasons why I believe that this passage should not be understood in terms of us losing salvation. And the first one is that we need to look at the context around it. Back in chapter 3 and again in chapter 4, to a certain degree in chapter 5, there are warnings that are issued to the people of God uh, saying, don't be like those who in the past heard God's voice but hardened their hearts. You remember, remember this from previous chapters? They heard God's voice, but they hardened their hearts. They were close enough to God. They had enough of an understanding of God to be able to understand what God was saying, but their hearts were hardened. And as a result, they, they never really stepped forward in faith. That's the context that, of, of what he's talking about here. So the first reason that, that I believe we should not interpret this as meaning a person can come to faith and then lose their salvation is that the context speaks to those who came close to God but never trusted Him. Those who came close to God but never really trusted Him. And you know, Jesus talked about this happening on a couple of different occasions. Let me, let's dig into a couple of them. One is in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a, a parable of a farmer and he's sowing seed and he talks about the seed falling on different types of soil. And he says some fell on the hard ground and, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places. It sprang up quickly, but it didn't last because the soil was shallow. It says some uh, fell among thorns and the thorns choked it, eventually choked it out. But some of it fell on good soil and it produced a crop up to a hundred times uh, what was sown. And so the point there in that parable is that there are different types of soil that receive this word of God. But it, later on in this chapter, he interprets exactly what he meant by what he said. And let me read Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21. It says, The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word of God and receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. See, I believe what Jesus is describing here is somebody that has a, a little bit of a taste. And notice that it uses that phrase in Hebrews, a taste of the goodness of God. They have a little bit of that and, and there's this initial response, but there was really no root. Meaning that there was, there was nothing really that, that, that ever took place in that person's life to give them any type of foundation at all. And then in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a, a similar type of, of a story where he talks about someone who is standing before the judgment seat of God and begins to recount all these things. I've done all these things in your name, prophesy in your name. I've driven out demons. I've performed miracles. And Jesus's response to this individual, Matthew 7, is, away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. I never knew you. See, that's the key. It's not the religious activity. It's not the stuff that you do. It's about knowing Christ personally. And Scripture teaches us, and our experience shows us, that it is completely possible to go through the motions of religious experience but never really have a relationship with Christ. Never really uh, come to a point of getting close to God but not really knowing Him personally. And I think that's exactly the type of person that he's describing in Hebrews 6. 
I mean, read verses 4 and 5 again. You know, when it talks about those being enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God. I mean, they got close to it. A, a great example of this is Judas Iscariot. Judas lives with Jesus for three years. Does anybody think that Judas was, was truly, um, you know, regenerated, that Judas truly was saved? I mean, Jesus said it would be better if he had not been born. He was around it. He, he experienced it. He was close to it. He witnessed it, but it never took root in his heart. So the context of Hebrews 6 is one of the reasons that we should not interpret this in, in terms of losing our salvation. But here's a second reason. And that is because we must interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. It's very dangerous to pull out individual passages of Scripture and say, okay, we're just going to deal only with this. You need to, to deal with the context around it in that particular writing, but we also need to deal with it in terms of what does the rest of the Word of God say about this? Because the rest of the Word of God doesn't, isn't going to contradict itself. And so we look at other scriptures and ask the question, what is, what is spoken about elsewhere in the New Testament about the security of the believer, or about the permanency of our salvation? Let me give you a couple of passages. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. According to this passage, when a person comes to faith in Christ, as having believed, then you're marked in Him with this seal, this promised Holy Spirit. In other words, at the point of belief in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside that believer. And it says that that, that believer is marked with a seal. In Bible times, a seal was a way to... Um, indicate something authentic. It was a way to indicate uh, ownership. If someone sent a letter to somebody else and they wanted to know, hey, this really came from me, they would put their personal seal you know, on the wax it held together and stamp it with their seal and somebody would know, okay, this is where this came from. It's a symbol of ownership and authenticity. And in the same way, Scripture teaches that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, meaning that we are, are stamped as saying, this one belongs to me. And we have God's name on us. We have the Holy Spirit in us that authenticates that we really do belong to Him. And it says that that's even a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That when we trust in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. A second passage that I want us to look at is John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. And again, this is the very words of Jesus speaking to us. And it says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It says Jesus knows his sheep. And again, that emphasis there you see on personal relationship, not religious activity, but relationship with Christ. He knows his sheep. And he says that he gives them eternal life. This is a gift. We, we don't deserve it. There's nothing we do to earn it, so there's nothing we do to lose it. It is a gift that Christ gives to us. And he says no one can snatch him out of his hand. Isn't that a, isn't that a wonderful image? 
to think of the, the big old hand of Jesus wrapped around us and us fitting in the palm of that giant hand. And Jesus says, there's no way that anyone can snatch you out of my hand. And on top of that, he says, there's no way anyone can snatch you out of my father's hand. And I and my father are one. So we are quite secure when we are in the grasp of Jesus. If that passage doesn't speak to the security of the believer, then I don't know what does. Now, you, you might ask the question, which I think is a valid question. Okay, what about a person who willingly turns away from Christ later on in life? What about somebody that identifies as a believer and then later on says, I don't believe anything that I once said. I don't believe that God is real. I don't believe in Jesus. I think it's all just a big joke. Um, don't believe it. What about a person like that? And I would argue that that is the type of person that is being described in Hebrews chapter 6, somebody who was close to the things of God, who was never truly born again into the family of God. Because how can a person be born into the family of God and have the Holy Spirit come live inside of them and then with the Holy Spirit inside them say, I'm just going to throw this away, I'm going to turn away and I, I don't believe it anymore. I don't believe that's speaking to a person that was truly saved and then loses that. I believe it's speaking to a person who fooled themselves into thinking this is the direction I'm going without really ever having something change and a heart change on the inside. The way it's, it's phrased here in verse 7 and 8 is it talks about the, the, the land. You know, land that drinks in the rain, produces a crop, is, it's useful. You know, that, that's indicating authentic relationship with Christ. But then it says a land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. Jesus put it this way. He said, you'll know a tree by the fruit that it bears. And so we can tell what was on the inside by what comes out. Now, let me be very clear about something and, and, and maybe offer some encouragement for you today. That does not mean that if you have a period in your life where you slip away from where you need to be spiritually, that that means you were never born again in the first place. We'll be very clear about that. Now, God knows our hearts, and only God knows that. But it is quite possible, and I think it's, it's to some degree or another, every single one of us goes through seasons in our life where we fall away from at least being where we should be spiritually. There are things in our lives that don't need to be there. Um, that's not what this is addressing. What this is addressing is somebody that is just completely turned away when it talks about cannot be brought back to repentance. Somebody that has just completely rejected Christ. Because even during those times that we slip away, there's something inside of us because it's that Holy Spirit in us we talked about a moment ago. There's something in us saying this isn't right. Even if I haven't made the changes, even if I haven't come to a point of repentance, there's something down in there that says this isn't right and I need to change. Maybe that's you today. Maybe just hearing those words, you're saying, you are describing me today, Pastor. I know that, that what's in my life isn't right, but, but I feel conviction about it. And that's an indication of the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. But it's important that we act and, 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 and do something about that, put things back where they need to be. Let's continue reading verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. See, see that, that coach coming alongside him there? 
saying, look, I'm, I'm confident of better things in your case. And it is interesting how in, in the first three verses he's speaking in first person, second person, you get into chapter four, I mean, verse four and following, and he shifts to third person. He's talking about them and those who do that. And then you get into verse Nine, and he again shifts back to second person. But I'm better, I'm confident of better things in your case. See, he's describing in those verses of those who, who didn't have a genuine relationship with God. He's not describing his listeners. He's describing what can happen. And he's saying, be careful to make sure your relationship with God is real. But in your case, I'm confident of better things. And he goes on to push him and say, because I'm confident of better things, you know, persevere and stick with it and, you know, don't give up and don't become lazy but, but continue pushing on in your faith. Don't just start and then fizzle out. Have you ever done that? I've done that. Start out really strong and then it's like, you know, after a pretty short period of time, just kind of you lose some of that momentum. I think about what would happen to me when I would go jogging, which has been a long time. Now, I hadn't done that in a little while. But when I would go jogging, my, my problem most of the time, especially if I hadn't done it for a little while, was I would start out way too fast. And you start out, right, I mean, you're feeling good. You know, it's like, I can, now I'm going to run, you know, and you've got Rocky playing in your head. You know, you're just running along and, I, and running really fast for about 90 seconds. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't do this, right? I've worn myself out. I started strong. I started fast but I can't finish. You see, what we really need to do is to, to learn to pace ourselves while we develop endurance. We need to learn to approach things from the perspective, I'm not going to run for 90 seconds. I'm going to take a longer approach to this. I'm going to pace myself. And you know, as you do that, you begin to grow stronger and you get better. There are people watching this right now that you run entire marathons at the pace that I could run for about 90 seconds and then poop out. But you can just do it all for, you know, 26.2 miles. It's, it's remarkable to me how some people can do that. And they've trained themselves. And they've trained their bodies to do that. But that doesn't happen overnight. That happens because you build up that endurance. So, so the point here isn't to start strong and fizzle out, but it's to, to develop that endurance that keeps going. And then... The chapter ends with a little encouragement, and I'm not going to read all these verses, but in verse 13, he begins to shift and talk about the promise of God and how God made these promises to Abraham. And of course, at the time, it seemed ridiculous when God's promising descendants to him, and he doesn't even have a child yet, and all these things that are going to happen, and God's faithful to that. But let me skip down to the end of the chapter, and we'll close on this note and just offer some hope for us wherever we may find ourselves today. Verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You know, I mentioned earlier that some people read Hebrews chapter 6 and it scares them to death. They read Hebrews 6 and their faith is shaken and there are all these questions and, you know, am I going to be that one that falls away and am I going to lose my salvation and am I really saved in the first place and all these doubts, which by the way, I think is Satan's playground. He loves to put all those doubts and those thoughts into our minds. Some people would read a chapter like this and get discouraged. I read a chapter like this and especially you get to the end of chapter 6. I'm like, man, how encouraging is this to talk about this faith that we have that is an anchor for your soul. Does anybody else need an anchor for your soul right now? Man, I do. 
And we need an anchor most when we are facing the wildest storms. When the storm is raging, that's when you need to be able to drop anchor and have something to hold you in place so that it just doesn't completely tear you apart. That's what our faith does. That's what a relationship with God does. It becomes this anchor in our lives. It becomes this thing that, that holds us together and keeps us from, from, from falling. So I just want to urge you today to hold fast to Jesus. I want to urge you today to do an honest evaluation of where you are and ask the question, do I know that I have a genuine relationship with God through Christ? Have I come to a point where I have truly entered into a relationship with God or is it possible that I've just gotten close to the things of God without my heart ever being changed? And this chapter is two things. It is a warning for us, a very uh, strong warning for us not to just go through the motions, not to rely on rituals and outward types of activity, but to evaluate ourselves and make sure that we are truly walking in a relationship with God. And if not, the end of that chapter says, it talks about Jesus who entered into that inner sanctuary on our behalf. What it's saying is that he, he entered into a place to give us direct access to the presence of God. And you have that same access because of what Christ has done. But it only comes through a relationship with him. It's not from going to church. It's not from doing good things. It's not from anything other than placing your faith and your trust in Christ. And when you do that, then he becomes the anchor for your soul. This morning, I want to encourage you to take that step if you haven't already. In fact, if you have even any question about, has there really ever been a time in my life where I've trusted in Christ and developed a relationship with Him? And I want to invite you to do that today. In fact, I want to give you a prayer. And we're even going to put the words on the screen for you that you can pray along this prayer, a prayer of repentance and faith and trusting in Christ. It's a prayer of asking Him to be the anchor in your life and in your soul. So are you ready? You ready to receive Christ today into your life? If so, then pray this prayer with me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I need an anchor for my soul. I want to know you personally. I admit that I'm sinful and in need of a Savior. I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sins and that you rose again on the third day. Right now, I turn away from my sin and I give my heart to you. I'm trusting you alone to save me and become the anchor for my soul. In your name I pray, amen. Here's what I want you to do. If you prayed that prayer, inviting Christ into your life, inviting him to be the anchor for your soul, or if you feel the need today to take a step back toward God. Maybe you have a relationship with Him, but you have fallen away and you know you need to come back. I want you to text the word anchor to the word on the screen, to the, to the number that you see on the screen. Just text that word anchor. So we can just send something to you. You can quickly fill it out. It'll take you less than a minute just to fill it out and say, here's what God is doing in my life. 
Here's the decision that I want to make. I'm trusting in Christ as Savior today. I want to know more about next steps like baptism. I, I, I want to rededicate my life to Christ today. Whatever it is, just text that word, anchor, to the number that you see on the screen. And we'll be happy to pray with you, to celebrate with you, and just to, to, to come alongside and help you moving forward. I do appreciate so much you taking the time to, to join in with us and to worship with us. Uh, it is our pleasure to be able to worship with you, to share God's Word with you. Uh, I want to encourage you to just continue walking in your faith, continue growing up in your faith. If part of what you would like to do as part of your worship today is to give to support the ministry of Gateway, you can do that through our website, gatewayonline.org. You can do that through the PushPay app, and, and we appreciate you doing that and enabling us to continue on with the ministry that God has called us to here at Gateway.